Uh, we schedule baptisms on the first Sunday of the, the quarter. Uh, so the first Sunday of March, June, September, and then December. Uh, so that's why I plan for first Sunday, 7th of December, to address the, the issue of baptism and the Holy Communion. But, um, but we had to postpone the baptism today because the, the, the children are doing this great uh, initiative to, to support uh, the poor and to bring cheer to others. So it's sort of, sort of a mismatch now, but never mind. The idea is to explain why we do what we do. I know a lot of us understand this already, but uh, through the course of the years, and even with new pastors who come into PPH, different churches uh, practice different things. And so I thought I want to do this uh, in the first and second service today. Baptism is sometimes referred to, as well as Holy Communion, as a sacrament. As a sacrament. So some of you may have heard of this term called the seven sacraments. Okay, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. But among us Protestant churches, we only have two, which is baptism and Holy Communion. So what are these seven sacraments that is, uh, you might have sometimes uh, heard of? Yes, one is baptism, uh, but it's also called christening, where a little baby, very, very small baby, would be christened uh, in the church. And then there is a confirmation, which is also called chrismation, when the, the, this little baby grows up to a certain age, and then there will be a confirmation exercise. And then we'll have uh, the Eucharist, which is the Holy Communion. Uh, and then penance, where it is also called reconciliation, uh, but actually you sometimes have to pay a price, uh, a certain kind of punishment, which is called penance. And then the anointing of the sick, which is also referred to as holy unction. Very often, this is more than anointing of the sick. This is like your last rites. Huh? As somebody's about to die, you call a Catholic priest and to pray over this person who's about to die. Then there is matrimony. We know that as a holy matrimony, marriage. And lastly, holy orders. That is this complicated exercise to ordain someone to become a priest. And after you become a priest, people address you as father. Okay. Um, then I did a little bit of research into this and I found in the Council of Trent uh, in, in the Catholic Church of those days uh, there are two laws called canon. Canon number one. Okay, uh, Let me just read this. Okay, It's very old English. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord or that they are more or less than seven to which baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, order, and matrimony, or even that any of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. So let him be cursed, basically. There are seven sacraments, so says the Catholic Church. And then there is a canon number, uh, what is this, four. Okay, it says, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, that means it's unnecessary, uh, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of, ju of justification. Though all are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. What it means after all this old English is that the Catholic Church says that these seven sacraments are necessary for salvation. We don't agree with that. We think that it is incorrect. 
we believe that the Bible must take precedence over anything that men say or over anything that the church writes down as law or canons. But some of these so-called sacraments are very good. I mean, praying for, praying for the sick is very good. Having a marriage ceremony, a holy matrimony in the church before God is very good. But we cannot say that these are the sacraments that will save our souls. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. So now let's just take a look at the two that we as Protestant churches uh, uh, believe that Jesus has left for us to follow. Firstly, baptism. There is a historical Jewish background to this ritual of immersing somebody in water. In the books of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Bible does talk about washing with water before, before you enter into worship, uh, after some sickness, uh, before you perform the sacrifices, etc. Note that the Bible says wash, uh, but soon man made it into a more elaborate immersion uh, ritual. And so there is this Jewish word called mikveh, which means a ritual immersion into water. And soon a whole long list of tradition followed. What are they? For women, after menstruation, uh, after childbirth, and before your wedding. For Jewish men, uh, before your wedding, uh, before circumcision of your son, so the father goes through a ritual washing before you circumcise your son, uh, before you recite the priestly blessings, for example, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make His face shine upon you, that numbers a blessing. Uh, before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is one of the, one of the most important Jewish uh, festivals, and uh, before any Jewish holiday, uh, weekly before uh, the Sabbath, and, and for some traditions in the Jewish uh, um, uh, people, among the Jewish people, it's every day you do a ritual washing. But for men and women, it is part of this conversion ritual. If you are a non-Jew, if you are a Gentile and you want to worship the God of the Jews, if you want to convert to Judaism, uh, what is called a proselyte, then you go through this ceremony. And so you will see a ritual bath uh, like this. This picture I took um, near the the Qumran caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. You know, in the distance, you see the, the Dead Sea. And it's kind of like our baptism pool. Okay? You walk down, and then you immerse yourself, and then you come up. This is the ritual bath that the Jews uh, would use. I just want you to note that one of the key requirements for a Gentile to worship the God of the Jews is to have such a ritual uh, bath. And, and there are many such Gentiles, if you just pay careful notice to the tribes that they come from or, or the races that they come from. For example, Uriah the Hittite would be one of those, right? He is in the army of King David, and he was a Hittite. A Hittite is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. So, and he's the husband of Bathsheba, whom King David had an adulterous relationship with, remember? So we believe that somebody like Uriah would have gone through such a ritual uh, a bath and become a Jew and then be one of the leaders in the Jewish army. 
But let's turn to the Bible. Let's see what the Bible tells us about baptism. The first mention of baptism is, of course, John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The people confessing their sins, and they were baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And soon after that, in verse um, 11, Jesus, uh, uh, John the Baptist told them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so this baptism is a baptism of repentance, and that is to turn away from sin and to turn towards Jehovah God. Now, the word baptism in Greek is baptizo, and it literally means immersion. Immersion. It is such a prominent word, and it is repeated so often in the New Testament that the English translators decided not to translate it, in a sense, but to have it transliterated. So, baptizo became baptism, like maranatha, like hallelujah, like amen. Okay, you no need to translate it. You just bring the whole word and, and use uh, that whole word. And, of course, we know that uh, there is a certain denomination called the Baptists. So the Baptists make a very big deal uh, of this word. After all, they are Baptists. So they are immersionists and not sprinklists. Okay, so Baptists. Uh, Baptist means immersion, right? Um, so the first mention was by John the Baptist of this word, baptizo. And the last mention at least in the Gospels, is by our Lord Jesus in the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizo, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the literal use of the word baptizo is immersion in water. But there is also a figurative use of this word baptizo. You'll find that in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 50, for example, when Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Jesus didn't say, I have a suffering and a death and a burial and a resurrection to undergo. He just used one word. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. And that covered everything from his death to burial to resurrection. And baptism meant the whole thing. Then in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, when, if you remember, two disciples wanted to be first in the kingdom, one wanted to sit on Jesus' left and Jesus' right, when he comes in glory, remember? And Jesus said this, in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, you don't know what you are asking for. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Three times. Baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. What does it mean? In one word, Jesus was saying, can you totally identify with me? Can you totally identify with my death, with my suffering, with my burial, and with my eventual resurrection? So it's a figurative use of the word baptism. Apostle Paul, you also use this word figuratively. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, he says they were all, the children of Israel, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud 
and in the sea. They were all together <coughs> escaped from Egypt and they all went through that experience of wandering in the wilderness together and crossing the Red Sea together, all together. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So what does it mean? It means identification. Baptism talks about being identified with Moses into the, crossing the Red Sea and all that. It talks about being identified with the universal church, with Christ, the head of the church, identifying with his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. You might also ask, why was Jesus himself baptized? If baptism were just um, a baptism of repentance, what has Jesus got to repent over? So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus answered John the Baptist, when he says, Whoa, why, why should I baptize you? Jesus said, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And the explanation is, can be found in chapter, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, Jesus was saying, if my people are to be made righteous, I must identify with them, even in baptism. That's what it means, identification. A fuller doctrinal explanation of baptism is given by the Apostle Paul. So firstly, it is to identify with Christ by be being baptized into his death. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It is an identification. We are joined together with Christ in a spiritual death as we go through the waters of baptism. And if you think about it, then our future death, our future physical death, has a totally different meaning now, after we have been baptized with Christ in a spiritual death. And secondly, it is to identify with Christ by being raised to newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So as you rise up, it is that victorious uh, moment and you walk into new life. Because the Bible also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The old is like buried in the water and the new has come. And one of my favorite verses would be Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me a new person. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is a newness that comes from this sacrament, if you want to call it, of baptism. Thirdly, it is to express our faith in God's power to raise Jesus from death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him, with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. So we are declaring our faith 
in the power of God who raised Jesus from, de from death and who will be able to raise us from death as well. And Colossians chapter uh, 2 verse 12 that we just read simply makes explicit what Romans chapter 6 verse 4 left quite implicit, that baptism expresses our faith in the working of God to raise Jesus from the dead. And fourthly, and lastly, it is a symbol of Christian unity. Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, but it is so closely related to repentance and to obedience uh, all over the Scriptures. And I believe that is the wisdom of God, that it is something so physical, so visible, in fact, so foolish and so embarrassing that you know you would just get yourself dunked in, in water. And I think that really is the wisdom of God. It becomes a, a teaching aid. It is an object lesson. It is a physical analogy of a spiritual reality. And, and like we always like to say, it is an outward expression of an inward faith, of an inner faith. And I think all of us here would know that among especially Chinese or, or Catholics or Hindus, you know, you, you go to church and you read the Bible, it's often tolerated, it's no issue, you know, just read the Bible and you pop into church once in a while until you say you want to be baptized. Oh, that's when... Or hell breaks loose. Huh? I, I've experienced this uh, for myself when I was younger. I wanted to get baptized. My parents uh, flipped. Oh, just go and learn a bit here and learn a bit there and see what other people do. But baptized? No. That's when opposition comes. And I believe that again is the wisdom of God. Nobody taught them, nobody taught my parents, nobody taught them the song that we sing at baptism. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. They automatically know that there is no turning back once you are baptized. Somehow it's like that. <coughs> so let's talk some practicalities. Huh? Talk about the modes of baptism, whether it is immersion or sprinkling. Here we practice both. I heard a Baptist preacher once, I, I thought I... I, I saved that particular sermon, but I couldn't find it. This Baptist preacher was preaching oh, really strong, and he says, he will get a sick person out of hospital and put him into a baptism pool. That's what he will do, because it is so important. He must be immersed. There's no other way. That's the only way. Um, I think here we don't do that, right? If you're elderly or if you are uh, uh, sick, uh, we'll baptize you by, by sprinkling. Okay? So that's what we do. Uh, secondly, can children be baptized? So I did ask this question to seven other brethren churches. And quite a lot of them would say, oh, we set a minimum, 12 years old. Uh, below 12, we don't baptize, or under very, very special uh, circumstances. Um, here we don't do that. Okay? We, we have a discussion with the parents, and we have a discussion with uh, the cool club teacher. And when these both agree, then we will baptize. 
no matter how young. Okay? So the parents and I, I think the, the Sunday school teacher knows if that child has reached the age of accountability and understand what's going on. But do we baptize babies? Uh, newborn babies? Or maybe below two years old, let's say. I have heard this said before. Uh, let me quote. The reason why the Roman Catholics baptize babies is the reason why we don't. Okay. What, what, what was the reasoning behind that? Okay. It, because the idea was that babies are born with original sin. Okay, we know that. And if they are not baptized, then this original sin will send them to hell. That's why as soon as possible, we will quickly baptize uh, the baby. Actually, when I did further research, it's somewhat mistaken. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church actually does not quite say that, although it is common belief. Uh, I found this actual word, and I quote, the church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, entrusts children who die without baptism to the mercy of God. As we do. As we do. But still, it's a very, very common belief that, that you quickly, quickly baptize the baby. Otherwise, in case the baby dies, the baby will go to hell. So that's the reason why we don't. If you worship a God like that, then you might as well not worship a God like that, right? Um, what about if I were sprinkled as a baby? Maybe I was born in a Roman Catholic family and I was sprinkled as a baby when I was, I don't know, eight years old or one year old. And, and, then, and then what happens? I, I think, okay, there is no law or verse in the Bible to say so, but I think when you reach the age of accountability, uh, let's say you're 18, you're 21, or, or, or you're 30 years old, okay, you come to faith, I think it would be good for you to physically go through the waters of baptism, even though you were like sprinkled a long, long time ago. Uh, as an act of public confession, I think that would be a good thing to do. And what has membership in a church got to do with baptism? I think it's just for convenience. You know, almost every church that I know of requires baptism for official membership. Uh, in fact, I would like to say, what, what has membership got to do with church? There is no such thing as uh, 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 written in the Bible to say that to be a member of a church, you must sign a, on a piece of paper and provide a photograph or, or whatever. There's no such thing. Huh? Once we confess Jesus as Lord in our hearts, we automatically become a member of the universal church. But it, is, it has become a convenient act to link baptism to, uh, to, to, to church membership. And I think it's, it's somewhat wise uh, to, to do that. Um, but there are other churches who have further requirements. There are certain churches I know that uh, to be a member, of course, you must be baptized. That like, goes without saying. But you also need to be one, one year in the church and prove yourself faithful and not a church hopper. Then you become a member. Then there are other churches who say, oh, you must go through a breakthrough weekend. You must join a, a weekend with us and then uh, breakthrough as in you confess all your sins and take all your baggages before uh, uh, and, and, and have it dealt with and all that. Uh, but for PPH, uh, for us, simply is baptism. Uh, to show that you have made a public confession. And I believe that is a sensible uh, thing to do, although it is not written in the Bible. Okay. Then why are people not baptized? Okay, I don't want to ask you to raise hands here who's baptized and who's not baptized, uh, but I just try to figure out some reasons. Uh, why are, and I love this picture, right? Jiang baptized me and I baptized his son. So one day his son will baptize somebody. 
Um, so why are people not uh, baptized? Maybe it's ignorance. Maybe the teaching from the pulpit or through cell group is not very clear. That I think is understandable. You just don't know that as a Christian, you need to make a public confession of your faith. Maybe it is parental or spouse or even children's objection. We've come across that when uh, an, an older person you know, wants to uh, get baptized and children uh, protest. Um, what I like to say is just talk with the church leaders. If you are, say, 16 years old and all your, your, your parents are, are non-believers and you want to get baptized, let's talk, let's pray through, let's spend some time to pray through. And uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good to honor your parents and let's be praying. But there will come a point, and I believe that point is about 21 years old, that uh, you need to make a stand. When you've reached the age of accountability and even if parents object, then you make a stand and you'll be baptized. But before that, let's be uh, gracious and let's be praying for uh, our parents. And who knows, you know, you pray half a year and then your parents say, okay. Happened in my case. When my first time I asked for, for baptism, uh, I believe I was maybe 18 years old or so, definitely be below 21, and uh, there was a protest. So we just prayed for a while and then the second time I asked, I asked behind the coattails of my younger brother. My younger brother asked and was okay, so I quickly asked. But uh, the first time was, was not okay. And just keep on praying. Okay, but there will come a point in time, I believe you must make a stand. Right? Um, indifference. It's like, it's only symbolic. Right? Baptism is only symbolic. What's, what's the big deal? It's not so important. And I've been living happily as a Christian, unbaptized for the longest time. If I now suddenly ask for baptism, it's like, wow, you mean you were not baptized? Huh? Embarrassing. Uh, maybe that's a, a reason, I don't know. Or, or just simply defiance. You're not, you're not willing. Perhaps you're thinking that you know, th- there are certain kinds of people, the more you press them, the more they resist. Right? Say, hey, I'm not baptized. Well, I'm not going to. Or, or maybe it's just there is, I don't know, like some secret sin or some, some, something that you do not, you cannot let go. And therefore you feel you cannot be baptized. Or the devil will do bad things to me if I obey God. <coughs> and this is no laughing matter, okay? It's, I've come across this several times. That, that, that truly is such a, a hang-up, okay? And you cannot be like so ungracious and tell the person, hey, like that your God is too small, you know? If you just get baptized and then the devil has power over you, then your God is too small. It's not that. It's something quite deep that we need counseling, we need prayer to overcome such an objection uh, to, to baptism. Okay, there could be a lot more reasons. If you find out, let me know so that I can complete the list. Uh, but still, my encouragement to you is once you believe, get baptized. It's as simple as that, okay? We do have what we call baptism classes, uh, which is not really a class. Huh? The way I do it, I, I just throw you the whole M1 book, you know, church membership, and then you've got questions, you ask me. Uh, no questions, get baptized. Uh. You know, well, some people, more conscientious one, like uh, Joy Chu, who handles quite a lot of this, she will sit down with you five or six sessions. Huh? Uh, but I quite long. I mean, some people who can read so well already, you read this, you'll understand, you know, why do I need to have five or six sessions with you? But of course, if you're a very young believer, I'll, I'll go through it properly with you. But still, my encouragement to you is, once you believe, you're sure of your faith, publicly confess it, be baptized. Okay, I do have time. So I want to show you this, uh, 
this thing here. I found this on Facebook, you know. Uh, one day I was just, it just popped up on my Facebook and, and there was a video there and uh, I think it's Diane, uh, Hock Chuan's daughter, says, how can you watch this video and not want to get baptized? Okay, so how can you? So I want to show you the video. <laughs> uh, let me attribute it first. Huh? It's done by one of our youth. Her name is Valerie. So it's, uh, it was like two minutes plus long. I chop, 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 chop. And then because after I chopped the music, got haywire, so I put in my, my, my music. So, but it's truly her work, uh, it's not my work. You know the story, right? Uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So the first part is the story. The last part is the fun part. If it can be shown. <laughs> Okay, never mind. Let's continue. Maybe we can come back to that later. Let me, let me just click on to the next slide, please. We'll, we'll talk about the, um, the Holy Communion now. Okay, several names for it. It's called the Eucharist. It's also called breaking of bread, and that's what we brethren like to use. We break bread. Uh, sometimes it's also called the Last Supper. Supper. And... Again, the teaching is very, very clear about this in the Bible. But again, man has to make it more complicated than necessary. Who instituted the Holy Communion? Jesus did. Okay, you can read it in all four Gospels. So it is ultra clear. Okay? Every Gospel writer mentions this particular uh, teaching of Jesus when he instituted the Holy Communion. Jesus himself talked about being the bread of life. Talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, okay, a bit gruesome, but he, he took pains to teach about that. And then, lastly, um, the Apostle Paul explained it comprehensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, we read that all the time, but I just want to remind us, the Holy Communion is, is less like so central to the faith that it is mentioned in all four Gospels, and is explained comprehensively in, uh, in the epistle, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. So what is the Holy Communion? We brethren ought to be experts at it. Okay, firstly, it is a remembrance. 1 
Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? So clear. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So it's very, very simple. You just remember. Think back to the days when Jesus walked the earth, the teachings, his suffering, his kindness, his grace. You remember. So that's what we will do later. Remember. Secondly, the Holy Communion is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of hope that Jesus is coming back for us. For verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's very simple again. Proclamation, uh, remembrance, proclamation. That we do it, we do it physically in a a body of Christ that meets like that because all of us here, the moment we eat it, the moment we drink it, we proclaim. If there is a non-believer among us and who do not understand, then he will know that this is a proclamation of our faith in Christ, what Christ has done, that he will come again. And thirdly, it is examination. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself. Examination. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, meaning died. So simple is to examine ourselves, to confess our sins, and to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. Um, But there is this very twisted and ungodly thinking to say, oh, this week, uh, this week I'm not worthy. Last week I was, but this week I'm not worthy, so I'm not going to take communion. Makes you very holy, right? Uh, That you examine yourself and say you're not worthy to take you are effectively saying that this week, Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross is not good enough. Last week it was. This week it's not. The fact is, we are never worthy. But with Jesus in us, we are always worthy. So that's the reason why we come to the table. It's kind of like Jesus or your parents invite you for, for, for dinner. And they say, last week I, I come because I was quite good, good boy. This week I'm not so good boy. I think I better don't come. It's not, it cannot be like that, right? So, when you read this verse that it says, a man ought to ex- uh, 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 taking the, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. We are all unworthy, but with Christ in us, we are worthy. An unworthy manner means that you're just flippant, okay? You walk in here and then you, you don't even say a prayer or, or whatever and you just take it for granted, okay? I think that is not a respectful, not a worthy manner, but... So long as you appear before the Lord in humility and in prayer, I think we should take it. Let me go off uh, tangent a little bit. Huh? There is this term called the healing in the atonement. Healing in the atonement. I think some of you might have heard of it. This is the teaching that says that you can find healing for sickness in the Holy Communion. And it has led even uh, at least one church that I know of 
to say that you really ought to be taking the communion every day to stay healthy and wealthy. And it's based basically on these three verses. Firstly, in Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely He, that is Jesus, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. By His wounds we are healed. And then also based on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on a tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Same. And then in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and carried our diseases, basically based on Isaiah chapter 53. Yes, Jesus bore our sins. He bore our diseases as well, which all started because of sin, whether it is yours or not. Every illness is started because of sin, because God created you and I and the universe uh, perfect. God saw that it was good without sickness. And yes, we need to pray for healing. Yes, it is good. It is necessary, it is godly to pray for healing. Uh, we always say that doctors can treat, but it is God who ultimately heals uh, through the, 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 the facility of medicine and, and, and all that, or not, or, or through miraculous means. But this healing in the atonement teaching has made communion into a superstitious ritual for health. And it's become so complicated why not just simply follow the Bible? Okay, what does the Bible tell us about healing? James chapter 5. You approach the elders who were anointed with oil, you confess your sins, and the prayer of the righteous, made righteous by Christ, not that we are any righteous people, will bring healing. So come for healing prayer service. We organize that. <laughs> First Wednesday of every month. No need to make sure that, uh, uh, no need to like, have communion every day and, and have it at home and make it into a superstitious uh, ritual. You know, it's, it's very, very simple. Let's not complicate the matter. What is communion for? We just learn. Remembrance, proclaim, examine. That's all. It is not a healing ritual. You want healing? Yes. Please, we do pray, but we do not have healing rituals. Even our healing prayer service is not a ritual. That's why we don't call it a healing service. We call it a healing prayer service. So some practical things then. How often should we have the Holy Communion since it is not required for healing every day? Okay, can you tell me first of all where this very brethren verse came from? Huh? For as often as you meet, you shall take the Lord's Supper. Which part of the Bible it came from? Not at all, okay? <laughs> it's not found in the Bible. It's not found in the Bible. What did the Bible say? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, it says, For as often as you meet, no, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. That's what it says. But some, through the centuries, I don't know, some brethren got this mixed up. Man. We, we always say it. We always say it. For as, for as often as you meet, you take the Lord's Supper. It's not. 
we do have a prescription, uh, not prescription, we do have a description about frequency. And that is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That's the only verse that is found about frequency. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together and they broke bread. So it is a description, right? It is not a prescription. The Bible does not say, as often as you meet, you take the Lord's bread. Our second service takes it monthly. Our first service have it weekly, likewise our Chinese service. But there is no biblical prescription for frequency. There is only one prescription. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember, you proclaim, you examine yourself. Okay, can non-baptized people take communion? Some churches specify this requirement. PPH, we do not. In fact, many, I think many brethren churches also specify this requirement, but we don't. It is just faith in Jesus. Huh? Sola fide, faith in Jesus. You have faith in Jesus, you are worthy. Why? Because Jesus made you worthy, right? So we take the Holy Communion. Can children take the Holy Communion? Again, we leave that to the parents, right? We leave that to the parents. If the parents feel that the child understands and wants to, then the child can take the communion. We do not have a vetting process. In fact, I came across a church one time who said that, uh, the pastor said, anybody who speaks in tongues, come to my office. Okay, I want to hear. And then I will make the decision whether yours is real tongues or not real tongues. Okay, so we don't want to do that. Okay, otherwise I'll be, have to interview every child. Okay, we leave that responsibility with the parents because it's a good thing, right? If you feel that your child really understands and wants to participate, then no matter how young, that is to be en encouraged. But if your child is... 14, 15 years old and don't really understand and not very serious about these things, then, then maybe it is your responsibility to, to, to teach or to forbid, okay, up to the, the, the child. Okay, um, like I said, man likes to make things complicated. There is one more complication. Have you heard of the term uh, transubstantiation? Transubstantiation. According to the Roman Catholic teaching, when a priest consecrates or just prays uh, over the bread and wine, they are supernaturally converted into the flesh and the blood of, of Christ. And so that's why they are very, very careful when they touch the bread uh, and the wine and even afraid to spill it because then you'll be spilling the real flesh and the real blood of Jesus. And uh, the best thing is when everything is over and when there's light, wine left over, it cannot be poured away into the sewers. Uh, the priests get to drink it all. Uh, um, I don't think that's, that, that's correct. Huh? There is no clear teaching in the Bible that way that, that, that says this suddenly becomes uh, uh, flesh and blood. Of course, we honor, we must pay respect to this uh, sacrament of uh, Holy Communion. Um, then there is another term I just found out called consubstantiation. And this one gets me even more confused. You see, the, the flesh and the blood is present at the same time as the bread and the wine. Okay, you go figure it out. I don't quite know what that means. Huh? It's a bit, they, they, they don't like transubstantiation. It's kind of like too spooky. And then now there's consubstantiation. It's sort of in between. 
who can administer the communion. In some churches, in fact, in many churches, only ordained ministers. Right? You carry a reverend, then you can uh, conduct the communion. Uh, what kind of a church is PPH again? Brethren. Okay? What is the brethren distinctive? The video you, you saw last week, priesthood of all believers. Every believer is a priest. So, okay, problem solved. Right? Anyone, anyone can administer the communion from elder to any church member to deacon to a female worship leader in a short skirt. That was one of the complaints many, many years back. I can't remember who the worship leader was, but there was a little complaint that came out. Hey, wow, this young girl in a short skirt can administer communion. Ah. How come? Ah. But really, it's anyone. Because it's a priesthood of all believers. It is a fellowship meal. And I would also encourage uh, communion within your cell groups. Huh? Make it a, a frequent uh, practice because the emblems are so powerful. Right? God has got special wisdom in, in instituting baptism. It is so visual. It is so powerful in instituting the Holy Communion. And, and let me say from this pulpit that uh, we don't need an elder or a deacon to go to your cell group to, to conduct Holy Communion. A cell group leader, you just do it together. It's the priesthood of believers. You honour the body and the blood of Jesus, what He's done, what it all means. You examine, you remember, and you proclaim. And that's all it takes. So, uh, I think they say they found the, the video is okay. So let's have some fun with the video. And then we'll get real serious with the Holy Communion, okay? thought long and hard about showing this in the first service. Because you may say that I'm very irreverent, but I thought 
so good fun, I cannot just leave it for the second service. <laughs> come now, let's, let's get serious and let's come to the Holy Communion. Why don't we um, stand and we sing this song to, together first? Just sing it one more time before we take the communion. Let me invite the communion service to come now and prepare the communion is for examination. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in a flippant manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let's examine ourselves before the Lord. In fact, the more we examine ourselves, the more we will be filled with thanksgiving and praise to the Lord because He has rescued us. He loves us. He gave His life 
to pay for our sins. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's remember what we've read in the Gospels, the life that Jesus led. How he was born into a smelly stable. How he taught. How he was misunderstood. How he was tortured. It was for us. We remember the love. Greater love has no man than this. Than someone would, someone would give his life for us. Let's remember. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So let's take the bread now, let's break it, and let's eat it. As a proclamation of the Lord's death until He comes. And let's take this wine and drink it to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. traditional liturgy which says and feed on him in your hearts with thanksgiving that's what we do let me now just end in prayer and after that we can collect the cups uh, at the same Lord God we are thankful to you for your wisdom in instituting baptism and holy communion and we remember remember the day we were baptized what a joyful day that was to officially and to publicly call you as Lord and Savior to make visible something inner and something invisible in our hearts that we have given our lives to you we have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back even the unbelieving world knows that there is no turning back thank you for journeying with us all these years and we remember your great sacrifice of your life the torture that you went through because of us. And we give you thanks. We thank you for the bread which we have just taken, for the wine which we have just taken. Again, so visible, so extraordinary reminders of your body and your blood, of your grace, of your love for us. And we give thanks. Thank you, Lord.
Would you now send us out into the world by your grace, knowing that we have received from you grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, that we too would be a channel of blessings. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.